0: My word. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love you so much, you don't even know. Now listen, hey, you guys have to stop because you're freaking out my friends. I brought two guys, they think you're a cult, so sit down. Please, please. Hey, I wanna welcome San Pablo, how are you doing? And I know Mandarin, you're checking us out too, so how are you doing? Give it up for Mandarin. We love them too. Man, listen, there have been people who've been so privileged to speak at Saturated once. Fewer have had the grand privilege to speak at Saturated twice. No one, I mean, no one has had the grand privilege to speak at Saturated three times except the Kwan. Now, I don't say that to boast, but I say, that does not make sense, right? (laughs) This does not make sense, and the only way this makes sense, because... You have to understand, many of you, this is your home court advantage. You don't know the movement that is the Church of 1122. In fact, the movement that started in Jacksonville, you're like, why Jacksonville? Something is going on here. And because something is going on here, if you wanted to invite anybody across the country and the world, they will be here. Then the question is, why me three times? I'll tell you why. Because when you're invited to a friend's house and Thanksgiving and you sit across that guy and you're like, who is he? And your friend's like, that's my crazy uncle. Yeah, he looks different. He speaks different. He talks different. He even has slanted eyes. (laughs) But you know what? He's family. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I'm part of this family. I just am. I'll say one thing because we need to start opening up Scripture, but I'll say one thing about your church and your pastor because I have a ton of things to say. I have a ton of things to say. But here's the thing, and here's the truth. Pastor Joby Martin could go across the world and speak. He's in great demand. I mean, elders have called me and asked me, hey, how can we keep this guy in check and accountable because he's in such demand? But I'll tell you, every time I'm traveling with him, speaking in different places, the place that he wants to be most the place that he wants to pastor most, the place that he wants to preach most is here at home at 1122. It's true. you got to believe it. And you have a gift. And you're blessed to have him. Now, hey, turn on your phones to Luke chapter 23. All right? So go ahead and turn on your phones. I have an old school thing called the Bible in the book. And I don't read from the ESV version. I read from the LPV version, large print, because I'm getting older and it's hard to see. So Luke chapter 23, uh, that's where we are for tonight. And I'm going to read this familiar section of Scripture, and I pray that God will preach a sermon through the Holy Spirit better than the one that you're going to hear from me just right now. That's my hope. So let's read verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led astray to put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what to do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews... And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the word of the Lord for tonight. And this is a very famous account of the crucifixion of three distinct people having a unique conversation as they are dying. And nowhere but scripture can we dip in historically to this window of a marvelous exposition of this marvelous conversation. And in this conversation, we see the description of how Jesus died. And yet, that is not what is the catalyst for the gospel. It is why Jesus died. And so we're going to pull that out tonight. We're going to see why Jesus died through three facets of the gospel. First person is the person who is lost. The second person who transitioned from the lost to being found. And lastly is the one who is the God-man himself, Jesus. So let's get to work. The lost man first. Now we see this lost man lost in two different ways. First, he is lost because, listen, he follows the culture. He follows the culture, and we see this in verse 39. He says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Man, are you not the Christ? Christ is the word for Messiah, the chosen one. He says, save yourself and us. Do you see what he's doing? He is mocking our Jesus. In fact, you realize that in this text... Everyone, the entire culture, the entire crowd is mocking Jesus. First, the people that mock Jesus are the religious rulers. The rulers of the day were called uh, Pharisees, and they were mocking Jesus. Verse 35, says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers, okay, the religious people, scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Then after the rulers... It says in verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now listen, the religious people and the secular Romans, they were both mocking Jesus completely for different reasons. First, the rulers and the religious people were mocking Jesus because they're saying, he can't be the chosen one. And they're really quoting Isaiah 42.1 which is a designation for the Messiah to be called the chosen one. He can't be the Messiah. He's dying. He's not saving us. Now the Roman soldiers, the secular guys, are looking at this guy, and he's not, they're not religious, but they're saying, he's no leader. A king wouldn't hang on the cross. He wouldn't die. He wouldn't rule that way. There's no such weakness in a king. Now what's intriguing about these two groups is you realize they wouldn't have anything to do with each other in society. I mean, zero. Think about who these people are. You have the Bible-believing Pharisees, and then you have the foul-mouthed secular Romans. And these people are people who would never talk to one another. They would never see eye to eye on anything. They're the modern radical liberals versus the modern radical conservatives. They couldn't agree on anything. But finally, you see, they agree on something. What do they agree on? They both agree that the cross is dumb, is ridiculous, is stupid. Anyone who is dying on the cross cannot be the chosen one. And they were unified in this. Now remember the movie, The Matrix? Every dude has watched that about 20 times, right? Amen? And if you are jobless, you watched it 40 times. You should get a job, but that's a different sermon. We've watched the third Matrix only once. Why? Because it sucked. Right? (laughs) Ergo, vis-a-vis, right? So listen, the first Matrix, there's this guy named Neo. He's the the one. He's the Messiah. He's believed to be the Messiah who's going to lead the revolution against the machines, right? But there was a Judas in the group. The Judas was going to kill him. He captures him. He corners him. He's about to kill him. And this is what he says. If he is the one, if he's the Messiah, you know? I shouldn't be able to kill him because he's the one, right? So how could he be the one if I'm about to kill him right now? And you know how the movie goes. If you didn't see it, spoiler alert. But you know what? That guy gets fried. And Neo survives. Why? Because the true Messiah, the one, cannot be defeated by his enemies. He has to live. And this is why the Pharisees, this is why the Roman soldiers, this is why the robber next to him was mocking him. You can't be the Messiah. You're dying just like me. And they're mocking him. Little did they know that they could conceive an idea that a king who owns the universe would become so weak to die for those people who are pretending to be strong. Never in the mind of a human being could think that way. And this is why the thief, this is why the Romans, this is why the Pharisees are making fun of Jesus. You see, the culture cannot agree on anything except this, that the gospel does not make sense. I want to put it another way. To be a Christian, to be a Christian is to not follow culture, but to be a radical, independent thinker. Yeah, Christianity, let me pose it this way. Is Christianity conservative or liberal? right? Oh, you're about to fall into that trap. I saved you. (laughs) Listen, let's just consider the early church. They were totally apart from the culture, and they were marked by five characteristics. First, they were radically, unlike the culture, radically multi-ethnic. Back then, you didn't get to choose your religion. The religion was chosen for you by birth. So if you were born into a Jewish family, you were a? If you were born into a Gentile family, you were a? Yeah, so you were that. That's all you were. Except when the gospel came in, it says, Neither Jew or Greek, Scythian or barbarian, slave or free. You are one in Jesus. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Yeah, they were radically different. Secondly, uh, they care for the poor. You have to understand that in the honor shame culture, uh, yeah, they care for the poor, but they only care for their tribe and their family who were poor. <laughs> they never crossed the barrier, ever cared for other people that were poor. Except the Christians because they believed in a doctrine that was called the Imago Dei. Which meant that every person, believer or not, essentially has an inherent value because they were made in the image of God. And because they believed that so strongly, they share their wealth, they share their goods to all people. So that was radically different than any culture has ever seen. Third, they were non-retaliatory. You see, back then in the honor culture, you mess with my family, you're going to get it back. It was an eye-for-an-eye eye culture, but the Christian came along and said, no, 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 not eye-for-an-eye, eye, but turn the other cheek. They said, forgive, 70 times 7, right? Don't repay evil with evil, but they said, overcome evil with? Good. Good, Good track. <laughs> Fourth, they were all pro-life. Listen, abortions were not very popular back then. Why? Because it was dangerous. And yet what was popular is that women would actually have these babies, discharge them, and discard them, and especially female babies, especially the girls. And the Christians would come along and not only redeem, bring to health, but to adopt these babies. They would redeem them and care for them and and bring them into their home. They're radically different. Fifth, sexual purity. Greeks believed that the body was just something to abuse and just enjoy you know, to satisfy the bodily appetite. They appreciated the mind, they appreciated the soul, but they did not appreciate the body. And it was the Christians who came and said, no, 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 sex is only to be done in a covenant of marriage. And that was brand new to to the culture. So let's just consider this again, review, multi-ethnic, radically caring for the poor, non-retaliatory, pro-life, and sexual purity. Now you realize the first two are like the Democrats. And the last two pro-life and sexual purity smells like the republicans and the middle non-retaliatory is neither (laughs) right neither listen but christians embodied all of them they were outside the culture they weren't like the culture they weren't following the culture you know why because they knew as peter preached they were aliens resident aliens. They're, they have green cards. This is not their home. They know that this world is just a passing by place. Amen. And you are a citizen of a different home, a better home, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, heaven. And listen, I just want to speak to briefly to younger folks here. I know there are a lot of younger folks here. And through social media, you are in a vortex. You are in a stream of consciousness in a way that where culture speaks to you as if it was the Bible. And what I want to say to you compassionately because I love you and I care for you because I'm a three-time returning preacher. (laughs) That should mean something. (laughs) Listen, if the culture is going to preach as if it's true, you must not believe it. You must not believe it. You must find a mentor and ask them to speak the truth into you and that you know that this is not your home. You are a resident alien. You don't have citizenship here. You have a green card. You live here, but you're going somewhere else. Amen? Amen. And so everybody is mocking Jesus. The reason why? Everybody follow the culture. Here's the second thing. If you're a lost, you exercise this. You test God. Test God. The lost man here, you realize that he has a test for Jesus. He says, yo, let me test you. If you pass the test... I believe in you. Now, what is the test? Now, just remember, Jesus up until now has performed a ton of miracles. He's been teaching the crowds. He's been living up to every demand and every promise known to man perfectly. He's given all the evidence to the fact that he is indeed the son of man, son of God. And then this verse 39, he says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is what he's essentially saying. He says, I will believe in you if you get me out of trouble. That's what he's saying. He said, I have a felt need. It's an urgent felt need. I'm about to die. And so you know what? I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you teach. I don't care how many people follow you. I don't care what the people are saying. I'm dying here, and if you want me to believe you, then you know what? Get me out of this. Now you realize How often, even as Christians, even as disciples and believers of Jesus Christ in the modern day, we do the same thing, right? And I will go far as to say one of the reasons why a lot of people in this room and in Mandarin are feeling far away from God is because you're giving a test to God. You say, God, if you're really, really there, get me out of this mess. And we say that all the time. With all my compassion in my heart, I say to you, That won't work. It won't. Why? Because when you come to God and say, here's how I know that you're really God. I have this view of what needs to happen, how life should go, and if it doesn't go my way, I know you're not God. If you say that, know that you really don't want God. What you want instead is a cosmic divine butler. That's what you want. And if so, you'll never find your God ever. You'll continue to be lost. You'll be just like this criminal who was cro- i mean very close to God. He knew that he was going to die, and yet that proximity meant nothing to him because he tested him, and he can't find him. You won't find him either. You'll be lost. Why? If you say, here's how I know that there's a God, you got to get me off this cross. What you're saying is, There's a God up in heaven who is so powerful, powerful enough to enter into time to exercise his sovereign power over all things of the universe, big and small. And yet he cannot, he cannot be somehow smarter than you to know that perhaps your life could be potentially played out in a different way that is better than what you think it should be played out. You see how that works? See, if there is a God great enough to do all this for you, listen, he has to be wise enough to know how your life ought to go better than you. Better than you. So listen, simply put, if you test God, what you really want is not a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing. You want a God who is all-powerful but dumber than you. That's what you want, that you're the smarter one. You should know how it's supposed to go. That's exactly what you and I are saying when we're testing God, when we're giving ultimatums to God. And listen, here's the reality. I hate to break the news, but you know what? There's no such God that exists. Could you imagine what he might look like? Big, omnipotent body, tiny little brain. A little teeny tiny brain. Could you imagine what that looks like? Listen, I know you're smarter than me, but you're not smarter than God. You're not smarter than God. He knows far more how your life should be run than you think you should actually have the intelligence or even the know-how, even the omnipotence and the omniscience to know. So you know what? Why do we constantly give him then ultimatums? To test God is actually a cry for a very small God. And if he's all-knowing and if he's all-powerful, then listen, he is qualified to run every single life (laughs) on this earth really, really well. And he's more qualified than you. Amen? Amen? So that's the lost guy. Now let's look at the found man. The second dying man represents one who is initially lost, but he is found. And the found man, one of the characteristics of him and found people is that they change their center. They changed their center, and I'll tell you what this means. In verse 40, it says, but the other, okay, the second dying man rebuked him, saying, hey, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now listen, there's something amazing happening here if you don't notice. The second dying man is seeing the difference between God as a means versus a God as an end. If you're going to ever come to a spiritual awakening, if you're ever going to be found from lostness, you're going to have to experience this also. Listen, look at these two guys. They're both in trouble. They have the same felt need. And yet they both turn to God in trouble, and one is found and the other one is lost. And the question is, what is the difference? Notice the second man dying. He's not asking. This is so interesting. He's not asking to get off the cross, is he? No. Remember what the first dying man says. He says, I will be with you if you get me out of trouble. And the second guy says, I will join you in trouble if you will be with me. I'll stay with you in trouble if you would be the center of my life. I'll choose trouble. I'll endure suffering if you will simply be with me. If I could be with you. He's not asking Jesus to, to get him off the cross. Now, listen, if Jesus offered that, he'd be glad to take that offer. But the first guy says, I'll be with you if I get, I mean, if I get in trouble, I mean, I get out of trouble. The second guy says, I'll be in trouble if I can be with you, Jesus. And this is so profound because the way. All of us in this room start our spiritual journey. It's the way the first guy does it, you know. We want something from God, not God himself. God, give this to me. But when you realize that you've actually done a wicked thing, then you start to be woken. When you say, I'll be with you if you give me this, do you see what you've done there? You see, with saying that, you've created a negotiable and a non-negotiable. And you know what your negotiable is? It's God himself. And every time you say, God, I'll believe in you if you give me this, or you resolve that, or you cure cancer, or you give me finances, you give me a home. Whatever that is on the other side of this if is your true God. That's your real God. You should call that your God. Name it. Don't put a tiny bow on it and put perfume on it. Call it out. That's your real God because this is non-negotiable. This side is. You see? What is the negotiable? God. What is non-negotiable? Well, whatever you think you need. And that's your real God. And what begins to happen to this guy is he begins to realize instead of a change in circumstance, what he really needs is a change in what his life centers on. You see, instead of asking for the life he wants, he wants to make God his life. And that's the difference. And that means some of you need to stop praying, saying, God, please help me to get married. Yeah, that's a decent prayer, but a better prayer might be, oh, Lord, I need you to be such a source of love in my life that I stop being so desperate and needy in all my relationships. (laughs) And that you become the center of my life. And that you become my all in all. That you are the primary center of all of my fulfillment. Or some of you say, oh, Lord, please help me get rid of stress at work. And what you need to pray is, oh, Lord, help me not get my identity through work of what I do, but what I am in you. You are my chief identity. All of my chief identity, who I am, stems and comes from you. That's what you need to pray. Or instead of, Lord, give me stuff so that I might have a good life, you say, Lord... Give us yourself that we might have a real life. That's what you need to pray. You see, do you see what's happening here? This shows you, if you want to go from lost to found, if you want a real relationship with Jesus, listen, you have to be concerned more with your soul than your skin. The first guy was more interested in his skin than his soul. The second guy was absolutely captured by the desires of his soul, than his skin. And listen, first of all, he says, I don't care about the trouble if I simply could have you. And the question is tonight, can you say that? Can you say that? Deep in your heart, could you say, I'll choose everything that I have right now if I get more of you. Can you say that? If you can. You're real close. Secondly, the found people, they realize their depravity. They realize their end. Look at verse 40 again. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Now, do you realize the second guy has changed his tune? Because in the Gospel of Matthew, we're reading Luke right now. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says both of these robbers were hurling insults at him. And now, five minutes later, all of a sudden, he's saying, man, we deserve death. I deserve to die. He says, let's not talk about getting out of this situation. I deserve death. Now, if I'm completely honest here, most of you agree that you are a sinner. We have no problem acknowledging that, most of us. But... You have a hard time truly, genuinely confessing that you are a wicked person. In fact, you think of yourself as somebody who sins regularly, but you do plenty good in your life that, you know what, you know more wicked people, don't you? You know more wicked people than you. So you know what? It's like that whole, you know, thing about, you know, hey, if you don't want to get eaten or mauled by a bear, just be faster than one other person right? And you're like, I'm good. <laughs> because it's, you know, God's going to chase me down. He's going to chase down that guy first, right? And you're probably like elbow nudging the next guy next to you. Listen, And the only reason why we believe that is we have believed in the false paradigm that pretty much goes like this. It's called the bell curve of good and evil. Try to find this online. You can't because I drew it up. <clears throat> Here's the premise, that there's a bell curve of good and evil, and it comes, and and this is the overall, where is it, Uh, the population. This is what it looks like. Do we have it? There you go. And there's a bell curve. Now, listen, let's... Come on. Class, settle down. I know Mother Teresa is hot, but come on. Okay. So most of us believe, on one hand, there's a very small, very real spiritual giants, man. Very few, though. And they're just godly. They're virtuous. They're so spiritual. Whatever they say, man, they they feel like they're walking on water. I mean, they're famous. They write books. They become saints. They become elders, stuff like that. (laughs) Very few are like that. Spiritual giants like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Petey. But there are way far and few in between, right? Now, on the, all the way on the other side of the spectrum, you see there's a very small number of people who are dictators, genocidal maniacs, and serial killers. And this is the epitome of evil. And thank God, thank God that there's only a few of them, right? Right? Including your neighbor. But, <laughs> but. You know what? We don't know how they got that way. They probably, you know, had a father, lack of father figure issue. Maybe they weren't homeschooled, you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're Seminole fans. Oh, there you go again, you guys, few of you. Promoting evil. Yeah, Knowles. I know. Yeah, maybe, right? So, but the majority of the population, majority, the fat middle where it curves up, it's the basically the decent people, and you know what, if you and I could plot a line in that graph, we would be somewhere in the fat middle, right, where it's bloated. That's the bell curve. Now, listen, that is not biblical. Did you know that? Because the Bible destroys that paradigm because it says there is none righteous, not one. In fact, there's only one, and this next graph shows that there's only two categories, Perfect and not so perfect. And there's only one person in the history of the world that's been qualified as perfect. And it is not you. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. And everybody doesn't fall on the spectrum. They're all on the bottom of the bucket. That's truth. In fact, listen to what Paul says. He smashes that paradigm and says, he says of himself, there's nothing good that dwells in me. He says, I am the chief sinner. Do you know how Paul could say that? I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. You know how he could say that? I'll tell you why. They consider themselves the greatest sinners because they themselves, including Paul, knows themselves the best. Out of all the people that you know, you know yourself the best. And I'll tell you what. If by chance tonight you feel like you are not the worst sinner in this room or in Mandarin tonight... Here's the reason why. Because when you think about other people's mistakes, you bring out the best lawyer in you. But when you think about their mistakes, you bring out the best judge in you. That's what you do. Yeah, big briefcase with a brief, big justification. You argue your points for yourself. But others, you bring out your gavel. This is how it works. Sufjan Stevens, an indie rock artist, wrote a song called John Wayne Casey Jr. It's about a serial killer. John Wayne Gacy, who killed 33 people in the Chicagoland, he primarily abducted kids and killed them, murdered them, and hid them under his floorboards. And this whole song is really eerie. It's a beautiful song, but it's eerie. Sufjan sings about the serial killer, and the last two lines of the song is absolutely haunting. The very last lines go like this. In my best behavior... I am really just like him. Look beneath my floorboards for the secrets I have hid. He says, look beneath the floorboards of my life and you're going to see gruesome things. And listen, do you believe that? Do you believe that you're so depraved that you don't need an advisor in your life? You need a savior. And that might be tonight. You didn't know that you're so depraved. You didn't know you were in the other category. You're so busy defending yourself by looking at the guy who is more wicked than you. But the reality, we are all wicked. So the first dying man is the lost man. The second dying man is the found man. Lastly, the God man. The God man. And the God man does two things. Number one, he exalts you. He exalts you. Listen, in verse 43. Jesus famously says, He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the question is, what is Jesus offering here? Of course, He's offering heaven. But he's offering far more than that. In fact, all the commentators say what most people don't know about this verse is Jesus is offering far more than heaven. In fact, the key is to see the prepositional phrase that captures the entire heart of this sentence. And this prepositional phrase that captures the heart is not in paradise. It's instead with me. It's not in paradise. He's not playing Bob Barker Price is Right. He's not saying, you will be with me in paradise. Not saying that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying instead, you will be with me in paradise. With me in paradise. Now, the words with me mean so much more than we realize. In John 17, 24, The night before Jesus died, he prayed a high priestly prayer to the Father. He said in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, they being us, they being the disciples, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Now the question is, what does it mean to be with him? The verse ahead of that explains in verse 23, I in them you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. He says, I'm going to the cross so they could be with me and you can regard and love them exactly the way you love and regard me. That's what Jesus is saying. Scandalous. In fact, Paul says something equally scandalous in Ephesians 2, 5. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead, not weak, dead. Dead people cannot be choosing to be alive. When we're dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, class, notice the verb tense, made us, raised us, seated us. What tenses are all those verbs in? Past tense, yes and amen. Yeah, it says he made us alive. Thank you, Lord. And then it says he raised us up with him, past tense. You're like, okay, I'm clearly not raised up physically yet because I don't have a six-pack yet. (laughs) So it must mean spiritually. He raised us up spiritually, like the symbolism of baptism. Get it, got it. Now, the third, it says, wait, okay, but he says, And seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I know these chairs are comfortable because we have metal ones that are crooked that fixes scoliosis. (laughs) But you have these plush, nice chairs, man. You don't have to fold. It's there. But it ain't the right-hand seat of Jesus. That's the honor seat. You're honored here, but this is not honor seat. And it says seated, past tense. You're like, okay, I don't get it. How could I be seated when I'm seated here? How does that work? And listen, it works like this. You are seated virtually. You're seated positionally. In fact, all three of these verses, verbs actually have a prefix in them that is the word syn, S-Y-N, where we get the word synonymous. So it means when you go back, he made us synonymously alive in Christ he raised us synonymously like Christ and he seated us in the heavenly places synonymously as Christ now what does this mean for the Christian if you are with him that means that God looks at you today as if you had lived his life could you believe it He treats you as if you have accomplished everything that Jesus accomplished. Now listen, I come here almost every other year, and I I told you a story a couple years back, and I have further development of the same story, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, My son, when he was 10 years old, I have three kids. My oldest is Caden. He's 14 now, but um, when he was 10... He had just a gloomy face in church. He's a re- really pensive kid. Now he's on the debate team. <laughs> he can't kick a ball to save his life, but he could argue <laughs> really good. So he's thinking. He's always pensive. So I go up to him. I'm like, hey, what's going on, man? He's like, Dad, could I ask you a question? I'm like, "Ma'am, your daddy. Tell me anything. And he's like, what is the greatest temptation of man? Listen, pro tip number one. If your kids ask you a question that you don't have an answer for and you don't want them to know that you're actually way dumber than they think, what you do is ask the same question right back. What do you think? (laughs) It's the greatest temptation of man. What do you think, son? He's like, Dad, I think it's money, power, and fame. You're correct high five he's like but dad dad but i'm not tempted by those things i'm like why not because you know what i know people are really really into money and being rich but i'm the richest kid in the world because i'm an heir to god's kingdom i'm like what and he's like dad and also i have a power that all the world desires they long for it but they don't have it i got it that is the power to live forever praise god and then he goes dad about fame, people want to be popular, famous. LeBron's kids are super famous because of their daddy, but I'm ultimate famous because my daddy is the king of all kings. And I'm like, Preach, son, when did I, I only have one question for you? When did I teach you all that? And he's like, You didn't. My Sunday school teacher did. Yeah. That message is sponsored by Kidman. Please go sign up after this event. (laughs) Serve in the Kidman ministry. Seriously. Amazing, right? Now my son is 14 years old. And just recently, just recently, I come back reporting to you an update that he got rejected by the very first girl that he liked. So I come home, Jenny's like, All right. Hey, son, you cool? He's like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm like, you don't have to play cool with me. We cool? And he's like, yeah, we cool. I'm like, hey, I heard that, um, that evil girl. <laughs> you know, that Tasmanian devil? Um, ripped your heart out. Are you okay? And he goes to me. Truth be told, he says, Dad, I'm okay because I'm the son of the Most High God. Fourteen years old. Listen, my son is grounded in his identity in ways that his daddy can't write now because I want you to so laugh at my stupid jokes. I want to be so liked still. And I'm working on my identity constantly as you are. And here's a kid who's so grounded in the very fact that he is a child of God, that, yeah, it stung, but it didn't sting that much. It didn't kill him. Yeah, where is your sting? He could say that, right? You know why? Because that girl mattered to him, but it did not matter more than the everlasting affection of an everlasting king. And he is a son of the most high king. And if you are a believer of Jesus Christ tonight, you are also the son and the daughter of the Most High King. And if you're not, if you have not surrendered your life, you too can be. He'll adopt you. You cry out to him, he will. Listen, here is why this whole thing is really, really important. Do you know that for yourself? Do you know that you are seated in the heavenly places? Do you know God says, because of the cross, you are as noble and sacrificial and courageous and righteous and loving as Jesus is? If so, why are you hurt so easily? Why can't you take criticisms? Why are you holding a grudge? If you know all that identity stuff. Listen, why are you perfectionistic? Do you know what this means, to be perfectionistic? You know what? Like Oprah and all these like, psychologists will tell you, uh, you don't love yourself enough. The Bible has a better answer for that. You know what they say? The Bible would say, you're trying to complete yourself. And Jesus says, it is finished. You don't have to complete yourself <laughs> because the work is done. <laughs> You don't have to be a perfectionistic because I was. Amen? He lived a life that you couldn't so that you could be treated as if you did. And that is the gospel. So stop trying to complete yourself. And Jesus says, it is finished. Why are you so afraid of what other people think of you? These are all implications and practical implications of the gospel that we have not wrestled with deeply. And perhaps you have not because you haven't exercised a portion of the gospel. Perhaps you're not because you don't know the gospel. Listen, are you a Christian? What do you think Bill Gates does if he loses five bucks in his pocket that he expected to be there? Do you think he's running up and down Beach Boulevard looking for that five bucks, going frantic, like, where's my five dollars? Do you think he's doing that? No. He, you know what he does instead? He stops and he says, Where's my five bucks? Oh, it's gone. He's like, Oh, wait a minute. I'm Bill Gates. <laughs> and and, and um, I have five billion of those <laughs> extra. Now, Christians, let's say you've been slighted. Let's say you've been hurt. Let's say, there, there, let's say there's some slander towards you that's not true. What do you do? Do you go up and down Beach Boulevard wondering why the heck? Did, what do you do? Sh- you know, just go into, go into your little room and watch TV and drown yourself in ESPN for the eighth time? What do you do? You say, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. And to be a Christian is to be to be seated in the high heavenly places and to treat be treated as if I lived Jesus' life. So who cares what the servants say if I have the everlasting affection of an everlasting glorious King? That's the truth. That is the gospel. That's what we're celebrating tonight. That's what we're joyful for, nothing less. You know, I was thinking this week, it could have been incredibly gracious of God if He sent us just for a little while into hell. Not so that we stay there, He'll bring us back out, but He kept us there just for a short time. It would have been so gracious of Him. More so, He would have been so gracious that he would leave us in a neutral place. It's not hell, but it's not even heaven. But forever and eternity, we live in this neutral spot, this gray area. More so, it would have been so gracious of our Lord to line us up with the angels and say, now you are an angel, and you practice your duty to actually be servants in my court. That would have been so gracious, but that's not the gospel. That's not us, because he made us alive in him and raised us up in him and seated us with him. And you're not the angels. You don't go to a mute place. You go to heaven and you're treated as if you lived Jesus' life. That is what you're in for, nothing less. Here's the last thing. I'll close with this. This God-man on the cross, he receives... Everyone, anytime. And I want to give you a couple implications of this. First, to the Christians in the room. I know that there are a lot of you who hope, like your friend and your neighbor, your loved one, your family, put their trust in Jesus Christ, that they would surrender their life to Christ. Some of them are here tonight because you brought them here. But there are some of those people in our lives that we've already marked as never. They will never come to Christ. I know it. The percentages are so slim, it's not going to happen. Oh, you don't know this guy. You don't know this gal. You don't know my dad. He'll never come to faith. Not in my lifetime. Not in this lifetime. Not in anyone's lifetime. And if this account teaches us anything, it's this. It is never too late. You realize on the cross, it was a buzzer-beater conversion. Not the 11th hour, a buzzer beater. Everybody counted him out. The only person that did it was Jesus Christ. Don't you dare count that person out in your life. You know what you should do? You should call. You should have them come tomorrow. Like, man, Albert Tate is coming. You should come next day. J.D. Greer is coming. Man, two days later after that, after a great concert, my pastor is preaching the gospel. You should bring him. Even though they said no a thousand times. Because you know what? If we believe in the grace of God, it's him doing the awakening, not you. So you're free to continue to invite and invite away. And oh, guess what? When you feel a little wounded, go back to the same gospel. You're like, who am I? Where's my five bucks? Don't be wounded. Come on. You have five billion of those. Don't you know that you're the son and the daughter of a king? Second. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, listen, I don't care who you are in this room. I don't care what you've done. There's a weird saying in the South. It doesn't happen in the West so much, but it happens with religious people. And they say something like this they say, that person sold their soul to the devil. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Do you? You could tell me after. Like, teach me. Because I don't know what that means. Because this is what I know, that the blood of Jesus Christ bought that soul. Amen. And Satan has no dominion over that life. Jesus Christ bought it. If all of the realm of nature is mine, it would be an offering far too small. Why? Because his blood is so costly. There's nothing that Satan can do that God could just say, "Pry." And that might be you tonight. Maybe you've been so religious that you think it's all about moralism. If you've never found the beauty of the gospel, and pastors will tell you, and I tell my church, if you've never cried over the gospel, if you've never been moved by the gospel, if you don't feel like there's bubbling joy out of the news of the gospel that you don't know the gospel. You just don't. One of my dear friends, recently an elder candidate time they were trying to uplift an elder in their church might like, there that's a good dude he teaches the bible he's faithful he's holy he loves his wife the senior pastor says he can't be an elder candidate why because he doesn't know the gospel how do you know he has no joy if you know the gospel you have joy do you have joy do you feel freedom do you feel the liberation Do you feel your deep identity rooted in the very things that we've been talking about? And what does it take? It takes just all but this. Listen, on the cross, that guy in the account of Matthew, he was hurling insults at him five minutes ago, and he must have heard Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And something washed over him. All of his life, lived as an evil man, a wretched man, and now he looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me, just remember me, and Jesus says, truly, truly, and it's this simple, I will remember you, you will be with me in paradise, you'll be with me, how could that be, I've lived such an awful life. I've lived such a rebellious life. I've lived such a religious life. And this is why I know for the last 25 years that I've known the gospel. And I continue to learn. I can never come to the end of God's grace. God's grace is far greater and far deeper than we could ever know. And it is unto God's grace and God's grace alone why he would receive you today. But no matter who you are, he will receive you. Have you surrendered your life to that joyfully? Now, there are many people in this room that has been saved like 12 times. (laughs) And I'm not talking to you. And what I'm talking to you about for you is you need to be reinvigorated by the gospel, Amen? amen? But there are some people in this room that said, you know, I articulate the gospel, I know the gospel, but I've never transitioned honestly from lost to found. I don't put God in the center of my life. He's not my identity, and you have not worked those things out. And for you, maybe tonight, maybe tonight, God is talking to you, and I only ask you one thing. I only ask you one thing, because after all, I'm a three-time returning preacher. I only ask you one thing, and I pray that you would honor me. If you today feel any inkling of the Holy Spirit talking to you, I pray that you would not wait and assume, assume that that feeling will come back again. Because you know why? Because God doesn't owe you that. He doesn't. Or many of you like, "I felt it?" I'm going to call it again. It's just like hitting that one lucky golf shot that you think you could do again. Listen, it hasn't happened. It won't. And in the same way, for many of you, you felt God talking to you today, nudging you in the right way. And it might be small. Your faith might be a size of a mustard seed, but that's all it takes for you to say, I want you. I don't want to come off the cross. I don't want my cross to be gone, but I just want you. Could I just have you? And Jesus will say, You're with me. You're with me in paradise. Would you close your eyes? Listen, you and I have given God countless reasons not to love you. (laughs) Countless reasons to not to love me. And yet none of them has persuaded God from stop loving us. (laughs) None of them has worked. Not a single reason. Not a single deed. Nothing. And he loves you. And his love for you is totally independent. His commitment towards you, his love for you is totally independent from your lack of commitment and love towards him. And if you understand that, you're beginning to be found. And if you were to say tonight, this is the first time I understood the gospel, not because of good preaching, not because of bad preaching, not because of the music, but because the grace of God awoke in me. Would you, in your mustard-sized faith, raise your hand so I could pray for you in this room? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray together. We have followed culture. We have tested you, God. We put other things into the center of our lives. And now we're asking you, will you still receive us? And we know the answer, but we need the Holy Spirit to confirm that because we just need so desperately to hear the voice of the Father. So will you whisper to us, Father, as we cry out, Daddy, would you just speak tonight? Will you remind us through song? Will you remind us through the inkling of the heart, will you remind us through a Bible verse? Will you remind us through a hug? Will you remind us in silence that you're there, you've always been, and that you are with us no matter what we've done? What grace, what love, what favor if the whole Realm of nature would be mine. It'd be too small for you, God. Too small for the love that you give. So in response, we say yes to you, and we say we worship you. We love you. We love you. Yes, we do. God is so so good. You are so so good to me. We pray collectively in the name of Jesus. All of God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Amen.